Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to the uh, second hour of Amplify. And uh, our special guest we're always so happy to, to have is Dr. Susan Mudo, whose latest book is titled A Feast for Hungry Souls, Spiritual Lessons from the Church's Greatest Masters and Mystics. And... I'd like to begin just by reading uh, a section from uh, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection on, it's the 22nd chapter, Celebrate the Sacrament of the Present Moment, begins with this quote from Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. The holiest, most ordinary, and most necessary practice of the spiritual life is that of the presence of God. It is to take delight in and become accustomed to his divine company, speaking humbly and conversing lovingly with him all the time, at every moment, without rule or measure, especially in times of temptation, suffering, aridity, weariness, and even infidelity and sin. And then Dr. Mudo uh, writes just a little bit later in the same chapter, to pray ceaselessly, does not require a set of techniques difficult for the average believer to master. Its practice is as mundane as it is profound. Brother Lawrence proves that to pray without ceasing is a sure, easy, and efficacious form of prayer. He says that the sense of God's nearness need never be lost since from rising in the morning to retiring at night, we live in adoration of God and ask for his help. Beautiful words, both from Brother Lawrence and from you, Dr. Mudo. Well, thank you so much, Father Ron. I couldn't help but uh, reflect during the break that uh, so many uh, people are feeling lonely, uh, separated, uh, really not able to have the kind of conversation that we're even enjoying over this phone. And I have in my heart that there's a ministry behind this book, and I think it, I wanted it to be a ministry to reach out to people to know that there are 30 tried and true friends that want to invite them to this banquet table of learning about who they are and how much God loves them. And I really hope that uh, the book will be of service to many of your listeners and, and many readers by just um, rebonding us in that uh, beautiful companionship 
uh, that we could perhaps speak of as the the wisdom of the ages. And here's someone like uh, Brother Lawrence, 16th century, uh, working in the kitchen of the Carmelite community, a cobbler, uh, shining the pots and pans, and letting every single little moment, whether they're convenient or inconvenient, become an opening to uh, the mystery of God's love. Uh, perhaps if there's any silver lining in this uh, time of enforced detachment, it is that people are are invited to reflect a little bit and to try to find meaning again in simple things. Uh, where would you like to go uh, next? Well, I honestly think that it would be important um, for us to stay a little bit closer now since we introduced the section on the modern masters uh, with uh, Brother Lawrence. Um, I'd really uh, like to compliment his teaching by the teaching of Jean-Pierre de Cassade, uh, which is chapter 25. De Cassade is a very a wonderful uh, spiritual director, and this collection of his directions in a sweet little classic, very easy to uh, read and still accessible uh, today, uh, t- ties in with what uh, you said a moment ago. In other words, the notion of enjoy fulfilling whatever duty God gives you. And I think that that, that note of enjoyment is important. In other words, um, enjoy um, setting the table. Enjoy making the bed. Um, enjoy driving um, to the supermarket, even though you have to wear a mask when you go shopping these days. Enjoy the uh, fact that this is the duty of the moment given to me by God and to try to make the best of it. Um, I think we contrast that with an era where people are so dissatisfied with everything. Um, Nothing means anything, and everything has to undergo instant modification and instant change, often without any dialogue. So this notion of Trusting in the providence of God, in the duty of the present moment, it's terribly helpful today. Uh, it is. Um, I would think um, if I were to get very personal, well, not very, but personal in some sense, uh, that abandonment to divine providence has, has been uh, my life uh, mm-hmm. from beginning till till end, especially from the moment of becoming a priest and the things that I've experienced uh, in in my priest my priesthood, uh, things that I didn't expect a, at all, and didn't really want to happen, but there are six conclusions that uh, he that in the six chapters of the masterpiece that he has written on on abandonment uh, to divine providence, uh, he says, "Let us do what we can day by day to perform our duty, and then with equanimity and trust in divine." providence, leave the rest to God. Two, let us behold the present moment as God's gift to us and see it as an invitation to grow in holiness by matching our character to the gospel truths Christ gave us. Three, let us recognize that surrendering to God is the start of practicing every virtue. It is our best defense against pride and our surest path to humility. And four, Let us go one step further and concede with wonder that complete abandonment to the will of God is the essence of Christian spirituality. 
-hmm. Five, let us ask God for the grace to see that the first fruit of faith is to enable us to detect the deeper meaning of whatever happens to us and to accept it with joy. And number six is, let us validate day by day the revelation that Christ's peace and joy can be ours the moment we abandon ourselves to the mystery of transforming love and to the light of God's unfailing guidance. I mean, these spiritual lessons just jump right out at me personally. Certainly, and even lesson number five, how important is that? How relevant? How contemporary? Step back for a minute and try to detect the deeper meaning, even in some of the chaotic confusion that is around us. God has not left us. God doesn't uh, take a vacation. God is somehow, somewhere, always there. And, and, uh, and by adopting the directives that someone like de Cassad gives us, it just, give, it just gives us pause to um, think through and meditate upon the deeper meaning of what is happening to us. Sometimes we have to move from um, complacency through chaos in order to come to a new creative insight. But that would tie in immediately with find the meaning. Don't just assume that this is impossible nonsense. In the nonsense, there may be a new sense, but you need to bring a deeper spiritual understanding to life. Otherwise, we're just lost in chaos. Uh, You point out uh, that... uh, um there is a uh, one would expect maybe not expect uh, there to be a protestant spiritual uh master in here and that's john wesley on christian perfection and why why should we not why should we not think that way that only catholics understand uh spiritual lessons that we need to learn well, certainly, and part of my goal as a teacher of the literature of spirituality was to recover not only the wisdom of the pre-Reformation spiritual masters, but to pay respect to the post-Reformation spiritual masters, to deeply committed Christians who live the gospel and who have found um, that their way to enter into this stream of classical teaching. For instance, John Wesley's great teacher is Gregory of Nyssa. So it's fascinating to see that John Wesley, who is the founder of Methodism, has a remarkable understanding of uh, being perfected in Christ and what it means uh, to follow in discipleship uh, Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, of course, uh, it doesn't make any sense to speak of the 2,000-year treasury and leave out four centuries of wonderful, wonderfully um, endowed spiritual masters who are part of the post-Reformation tradition. And so not only is Wesley a, a fine teacher, but also I learned so much from Evelyn Underhill, the great Anglican mystic, Uh, Her famous book on mysticism actually is a remarkable analysis of the teaching of St. Catherine of Genoa. And Evelyn Underhill 
teaches us what she calls practical mysticism. She had a huge love for Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection to see and just, he said, cleanse our perception. Why are you going around blinded? Why can't you see what is really real? And then the Quaker tradition, marvelously illustrated by Thomas Kelly, one of the truly great post-Reformation classics, The Testament of Devotion, and how could one possibly miss Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, on the cost of discipleship, Dietrich who was martyred uh, by the Gestapo for his belief. So um, it's, it's again to remind our readers of a feast that we are looking at uh, people who have, um, of a person, male, male or female, really followed radically in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And you point out that uh, Wesley pledged to uh, speak the plain truth of God's saving love to everyday people. Yes. Uh, you don't have to be a spiritual master here. Uh, and, and that he reminds us to examine the state of our soul. How do we do that? Uh, just, you're not going to be, we could do a whole program on that, but just what, what, is he, what is he wanting us to do there? Well, I think that the word um, examine, I mean, it actually reminds us of St. Ignatius of Loyola, an examination of consciousness. What Wesley is saying is examine to what degree you are or are not loving God with your whole heart and your whole soul, loving your neighbor as you are asked by God to love yourself. He goes through the commandments and the Beatitudes and then asks us in honesty, with great courage and candor, um, am I living, as it were, this plain, straightforward way of walking with Jesus or not? Yes. And, uh, uh, and you brought up Evelyn Underhill on practical mysticism, um, and you write there that a, a mystical or contemplative outlook on life involves each of us in a spiritual adventure to which the nearest human analogy is the experience of falling in love. And there's mm -hmm. something we can learn from that, isn't there? So much we can learn about falling in love between us and another human being and between us and God. Yes, and you see again, who were Evelyn's teachers? I mentioned um, Catherine of Genoa, but in her great classic on mysticism, her teachers were other remarkable women who manifested a truly formative and transformative spirituality, including Catherine of Siena and Teresa of Avila. And the, those women, certainly, we could say um, in a phrase, fell in love with the Trinity, fell in love with Jesus just like Elizabeth of the Trinity fell in love. You see, the, the mystics, that's why I subtitled the book, Spiritual Lessons from the Church's Greatest Masters and Mystics. The mystics could not find a better way to describe this being literally swept off their feet than their intimacy with God. God is not some uh, deist force out there putting the cosmos in order, and then forgetting about us. God is with us, in us, around us, and the love relationship is everything. So um, I'm sure you noticed that the 30 
masters that we've chosen, there's a good balance of men and yes, women. Yes, and women, yes. Because there, there is such an importance in recognizing that the life of the Spirit is lived at a great depth by uh, Christian men and Christian women. How might we live if we truly believed, as uh, Therese of Lisieux taught and believed, that uh, life is one act of love? She believed that the light of God within her was meant to radiate through her into the situations in which she found herself, which gets back to the concept of divine providence, where God seems to have to have put us. And she had her own secrets of sanctity, didn't she? Oh, yes. And Therese is a, is a greatly loved uh, saint, mystic, doctor of the Church. And that's another thing. I wanted to honor um, Therese and Teresa of Avila and Catherine of Siena, all of whom are doctors of the Church, though none of them had any higher uh, professional education, like St. John of the Cross at the University of Salamanca. But here's little Therese, who would uh, die very young uh, at uh, 24 of tuberculosis, who found through reading the epistles of St. Paul, and especially loving the Gospel of John, that Deus Caritas Est, God is love. When Therese suddenly realized that, she put it all together and said, well, therefore, if God is love, our life should be, and these are her beautiful words, one act of love. And that's why she was able to talk of the little way of spiritual childhood. Um, Again, uh, not complicated techniques, but simply following that way of love and trust, indeed putting into action the great virtues of her mother in the faith, Teresa of Avila, humility, detachment, and fraternal charity. You um, mentioned Elizabeth of the Trinity uh, on intimacy with uh, with God, and she believed that the grace of God cannot be confined to chronology. But more important and just down and practical, she was able to bring out the good in everyone she encountered. And I would it be fair for us to say that that's what God expects of each of us? I think so. And again, Elizabeth of the Trinity may not be um, that well known as Therese of Lisieux, although uh, she really is gaining a lot of love and commendation. Her wonderful uh, prayer to the Trinity is actually um, quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But uh, we learn, especially through her letters, that every person that brought a little bit of their troubles into a letter to Therese, uh, to Elizabeth. She always found a way to weave back to how ultimately um, there was in them a spark of love. There was in them a shining light of God, and that they mustn't ever uh, think of themselves as uh, less than God thinks of them. So there was a gentleness about her. She suffered quite a lot physically, but her whole um, sense of finding an intimacy with God was really giving praise and giving glory to that uh, deepest uh, thread that binds us to God. Right. We have less than a minute now, and um, when we come back, we're going to uh, talk about uh, um, Thomas Kelly. Not many people know about him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is pretty well known. Uh, Thomas Merton is also pretty well known. Let me just give uh, the two phone numbers if someone wants to uh, 
get a copy of the book locally. It's 412-341-7494 or toll free. Uh, you can call 877-324-6873. Again, 412-341-7494 or 877-324-6873. The title of the book, A Feast for Hungry Souls, Spiritual Lessons from the Church's Greatest Masters and Mystics. Welcome back to uh, the final segment of Amplify, just about uh, 20 minutes. And um, our guest is Dr. Susan Mudo. title of the book is A Feast for Hungry Souls. A Feast is, no, it's not a cooking book. It's not a cooking book. A Feast for Hungry Souls, but they're spiritual lessons from the church's greatest masters and and mystics. Dr. Mudo, let me, let me just jump back before we talk about the last thing. Uh, Three chapters of, of your book. This is the Feast of Corpus Christi, and I had made a note that I wanted to make one reference about, is it uh, Jean von Reisbruck? Yes, uh, the blessed Jan von Reisbruck, uh, a Flemish mystic, dearly loved by Father Adrian, and I want to thank him for uh, calling uh, Jan von Reisbruck to my attention. I just loved his teaching, and I had it was imperative to include him in this book. And uh, on pages 157 158, he describes eight different kinds of persons who received the Blessed Sacrament. For Catholics, we're celebrating today the mm-hmm. Feast of, of Corpus Christi, the Corpus body Christi. of Christ, yes. Yes, yes. Well, of course, uh, there again, uh, we will see woven through so many of the, uh, the uh, wonderful friends that we meet in this book uh, a tremendous uh, veneration for the incarnate Lord and for the uh, way in which uh, eat my body and drink my blood has completely um, revolutionized the world. And so we find uh, someone like uh, Roycebrook, uh, the Flemish master, and then we'll ba- we're back to someone like Elizabeth of the Trinity who was swept up in uh, ecstasy almost when she received Holy Communion. She was so aware that of the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think many um, sections of the book uh, echo uh, the veneration that we have for the body of Christ and that we celebrate today. And uh, you write in this particular chapter, when we become children of God, we put our life of sinful selfishness behind us and strive mm-hmm. after virtue. We do not wish to remain hirelings. We want to become faithful followers, detached from wanton pursuits of power, pleasure and possessions, and living in trust of God. We rely on God's grace to obey the commandments and to purge ourselves of all traces in self-interness. I could, I could go on and on reading. Uh, people just need to get, get a copy of the book. We, I do want to be able to talk about the last three chapters. You made a reference to Thomas R. Kelly uh, on The Light Within. Uh, Tell us a little bit about him, since we don't know that much about him, because in each chapter you provide a bit of a biography of each person. Yes, that's another service, I think, to the readers. Uh, We call it Meet the Master, 
And uh, Thomas Kelly uh, was a very intelligent person, brilliant uh, scholar, but honestly, like Augustine, he had a tremendous conversion where he knew that mere learning about God was not something that would satisfy his soul. And he went back to the founder of Quakerism, George Fox, who had a tremendous uh, sense of uh, the phrase that I use in this chapter, the light within. In other words, uh, there is uh, a presence in us, a light, a spirit-filled awareness that uh, we can access, especially in silence. And so uh, Kelly really gave up on words, 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 and really entered into the deep silence that is so important. Like, for example, in a Quaker meeting house, uh, it's primarily silence until someone is moved by the Spirit to speak. So he wrote this little masterpiece called A Testament of Devotion, in which he uh, suggested almost like five movements. I call them five facets of the diamond of divinity starting with the light within, really recognizing, again, that inner glow that is uh, are being made in the image and likeness of God. He addresses holy obedience, which is listening to the inner voice in a certain disposition of uh, submissiveness and readiness to hear uh, Jesus speaking. So holy listening is very important in the Quaker tradition, as is the blessed community, really the fellowship that we share with one another as Christians, and then a very fascinating chapter, utterly relevant to our world, the eternal now and social concern, finishing up the fifth facet with simplification of life. But I'd like to uh, just uh, read what he, what Thomas Kelly says about the eternal now and social concern, since we're very involved with that social distancing and so on, and all of the chaos that's going on in our streets. Uh, he says somewhat prophetically, uh, first I write, an experience of the eternal breaking into time is the ground of every social endeavor. From this point of view, the inward and the outward life are one whole. And here is from the Testament itself. Thus in faith, says Kelly, we go forward with breathtaking boldness. And in faith, we stand still, unshaken with amazing confidence. For the time nows are rooted in the eternal now, which is a steadfast presence an infinite ocean of light and love which is flowing over the ocean of darkness and death. I mean, how hopeful is that? An infinite ocean of light and love which is flowing over the ocean of darkness and death. And he says, quote, The burning bush has been kindled in our midst and we stand together on holy ground. There is an image we need. Uh, Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Yes, so really, uh, Thomas Kelly's Testament of Devotion, it's actually one of the required readings in our Epiphany certification program because he definitely touches upon uh, the God-awakened life and how important that is. And, you know, he gives us some tenets, while they are very important in Quaker spirituality, as a uh, school of spirituality, they have... Uh, they embellish, as I say in the book, the 2,000-year treasury of our faith and formation tradition. 
among those tenets are trust the promptings of the Spirit in your heart. Place your being and your doing under the authority of Jesus Christ. Take time each day to center down and sink into the embrace of the eternal, eternal now. Stand up against injustice by witnessing to the peace of Jesus. Try your best to alleviate unjust conditions of tyranny, fear, and suppression of freedom. Live simply and show loving concern for all creatures. Foster reverence for life and rejoice in the splendor of God's gift of creation in and around mm. us. Again, uh, proving the point that I try so hard to bring home in this book, that we can be reading one classical author, and yet we're reading all of them. I, that's, that's a fascinating concept, really. Uh, and we, we, need to, we need to live it. And then uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, the cost of discipleship, uh, who makes a distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. And uh, you write that we accept in humility that we can only meet the demands of daily duty when we forget about success or failure and cast ourselves into the outstretched arms of the crucified. Jesus took upon himself the sufferings of the world. And what are our sufferings compared to his? And then uh, he writes, you write about uh, steps uh, to take to become mature disciples on, on page 302. Uh, yes, uh, the distinction that uh, Dietrich makes is a truly um, fine one. And uh, let us hope that we are on the side of costly grace, because cheap grace is really manipulative. It's about, uh, look, God, you either give me what I want or I don't want to know you anymore. Costly grace stands its ground um, already at the foot of the cross. And, I mean, his famous uh, meditation, be just written shortly before he was executed in the Gestapo prison of Tegel in, uh, near Berlin, uh, he talks about uh, discipline or discipleship. If you want to seek freedom, we have to discipline. He says, be chaste in your mind and body action, then you can do what is right, and you won't live a life of really a quite hideous duplicity, which is very much scandalous to any population. He said, recognize that suffering is, not, is just a sign that you are committing your life into stronger hands. Um, so rest contented. And death, that, that is beautiful, and it reminds me of someone that he truly loved, which was Francis of Assisi, this uh, famous canticle of the sun, where Francis calls death sister, sister death. And here's Dietrich years later, Come now, thou greatest of feasts, on the journey to freedom eternal. Freedom, how long have we sought thee in discipline, action, and suffering? Dying, we may now behold thee revealed in the Lord. So this is a man of tremendous courage. I mean, he embraced the cross. So much of Dietrich's writings remind me of some of the writings of John of the Cross, who himself was imprisoned for a number of years uh, by his own uh, community, who did not wish him to be involved in the Theresian reform. But uh, these are great-souled people who have a lot to teach us today. Right, and um, throughout you write the, the cost of discipleship. Bonhoeffer names several steps to follow if we want to become 
mature disciples of the Master, they include leaving the security of our comfort zone and seek fellowship with Christ to rise up and follow him in an act of radical obedience, letting the call of discipleship lend meaning to all we are and do, knowing that this costly existence has a quality of its own, which may lead us where we would not have chosen to go, being willing to ask life-changing questions such as, quote, is there some part of my life which I refuse to surrender at Christ's behest? Some sinful passion, some animosity, some expectation, perhaps my ambition or my reason, and refusing to keep control of some part of our life or to absolve ourselves from what we know in our heart to be wrong. And so here, here is those, that merger you're talking about between all 30 of these various teachers in spirituality, these masters and mystics, and the themes, the truth is fundamentally the same, and yet we find it being expressed in different ways, in different concepts. Yes, uh, for instance, uh, just the word discipleship, we have to come back on that today. I mean, we have tons of courses in leadership, and we have to be careful they don't get caught up in a corporate model, because discipleship is really a following. And that point that Dietrich makes, letting the call of discipleship lend meaning to all that we are and do, especially when life leads us where we would not have chosen to go. Now, we have to immediately understand that Dietrich was completely schooled in the Scriptures. I have a feeling he was thinking about St. Peter after uh, Jesus uh, was assured, I love you, I love you, I love you, tend my lambs, tend my sheep, and then Jesus puts them to the final test of discipleship. But when they tie a belt around your waist and drag you where you don't want to go, will you still follow me? So I I think it's the radicalness uh, in the best sense of the word. These masters go to the root of what it means to be a Christian. They're not messing around with cultural Christianity, what the great Lutheran Soren Kierkegaard called Christendom. They're not wasting time on going into church uh, with your white collar on and then coming out and cheating people and hating people and ruining their lives. That's not Christianity. So meeting these masters is going to call us to task. We're going to have to take a very careful look at whether or not uh, we are truly following this master. And the last master in the book is uh, Thomas Merton, and you write, Merton wants us to open our eyes to see that in tedious chores there is mystical depth that we must never confine contemplative life to a cloister. Why do we persist in living in airtight compartments when we are immersed in a mercy beyond telling? Why is it so hard for us to discover Christ in new and unexpected places? Are we willing to submit ourselves unconditionally to the Master? Do we want Him to free us from the prison of egocentricity? Can we accept the paradox that self-emptying is the surest pathway to self-fulfillment? What would you like to tell us about Thomas Merton and his teaching? Well, the first thing I would like to say is that here again, I'd love the readers of that chapter 20 to go back to chapter 6 on uh, St. Benedict of uh, Nursia, because, of course, uh, 
Merton as a Trappist, as a Cistercian, is completely grounded in the Benedictine tradition, and Benedict is the founder of that tradition. And uh, in Chapter 6 from the Ancients, uh, we we really are working on bringing the contemplative and the active life into one, balancing worship and work, uh, remaining at one and the same time completely open and enamored of God in deep love relationship through contemplative prayer, and yet uh, recognizing that we are also to be not only um, active contemplatives, but contemplatives in action. So Merton is a true devotee, of his original founder of the Benedictine life, uh, St. Benedict of Nursia. But Merton um, also had a huge love for John of the Cross. He wrote a book on um, the life of faith in relation to St. John of the Cross called The Ascent to Truth. And, of course, he had another story, not unlike the metanoia conversion story of uh, Augustine. I mean, Merton was a very worldly person before he discovered Jesus Christ and really understood that he was called to a, a, a life that he couldn't have imagined when he was in Paris and writing books and so on and so forth. So uh, once again, um, this yes to Jesus may well take us where we would not have wanted to go, but it turns out to be the fullness of our call and the fullness of our vocation. And you're right. The central message of Merton spirituality is that our life is a continuous seeking and finding of God, that we might share God's love with others. So simple and yet so profound. Merton teaches us the freeing truth that contemplation is the work of the Holy Spirit acting in our souls through the gifts of wisdom and understanding that increase our love for God and neighbor and that draw us to the joy only union with God can grant. And uh, I'll leave us here without a way, a time to explain it. He believes that the speech of God is silence. We'll leave that for another time. Our guest this evening has been Dr. Susan Mudo. Again, the title of the book is A Feast for Hungry Souls, Spiritual Lessons from the Church's Greatest Masters and Mystics. Thank you very much for being with us. Ben. Wonderful to talk with you once again. Thank you so much, Father Ron, and we'll thank Ave Maria Press uh, out of Notre Dame, Indiana, for publishing this book. All right. Look forward to our next meeting. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. now. Good night. Good night. So um, um, let me just, um, one of the quotes, or one of the, one of the summaries that she writes about for Thomas Merton, since we, we've been talking about him, is, To find the balance between not enough prayer and too much work and vice versa may elude us until we experience the contemplation and action are two sides of the same coin of our being centered in God. Each activity is edifying in the eyes of God. So no matter how it is that we are living in our life, we are able to edify God through contemplation and also through action. To be drawn inward is to be made ready to serve God anywhere. We can serve God anywhere. Our life is a continuous seeking and finding of God 
that we might share God's love with others. The great cloud of witnesses whose main themes are here shows us that the masters that uh, we have talked about then uh, tonight, and we didn't get to all of them, of course. There's no way that we've been able to do that. But in each of the eras, the masters um, uh, want us to become, um, Dr. Mudo writes, interiorly liberated, that no cross we have to carry, and we all have crosses to carry, no material constraint or spiritual challenge we must endure, no incident of worldly failure or success can deter us from living in the light and love that lead to intimacy within the Trinity. There she, there, and she writes this, there the radical restlessness of our human heart culminates in a mystical experience of resting in God momentarily here on earth and forever and eternity. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone. And come back next Sunday and amplify with us. <laughs> 